Word of God, Acts chapter 13, starting uh, in verse 13. Oh, yeah, children are dismissed to children's church. <laughs> they, they don't forget. I, I sometimes uh, don't always remember. All right, let's read the Word of God. Now Paul and his companions set sail from uh, Paphos and came to Perga at Pamphylia. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers uh, of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement uh, for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioned with his hand, uh, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, you who fear the Lord, listen. The God of his people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. And uh, for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. And then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when they had removed him, he raised up David. Uh, When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own, after my heart, who will do all my will. Of his, of this man's offspring, God brought uh, to Israel a savior, Jesus, as promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they had found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried him out, uh, when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. God, But God raised him up from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, uh, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he was raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give to you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. 
But, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which he could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about you. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if no one tells, if one tells it to you. Let's start this morning with a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would uh, speak to us from your word, uh, that it would be clear. Uh, this is your word and it has value and meaning. You have things to tell us, things to correct us, things to, to challenge us and cause us to grow in our, in our walk with you. And we ask that you would do that this morning. We ask that you would send your spirit and just be at work in our hearts and change our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've been noticing lately, uh, but more recently we've had a number of political commercials again uh, on television. It's that season, and, and the Pennsylvania primary vote is, is on Tuesday. And, and I don't know if you're like me, but you notice, obviously, that politicians make promises. And then you wonder, how many of these promises are they going to keep? Or maybe you wonder, how are they going to pay for these promises that they've promised uh, to do? We are, we are almost so used to hearing promise, uh, promises from politicians and almost knowing that they either don't totally mean it or we expect them in some way to break the promise. We expect them to just tell us things that they think we want to hear. People break promises. God doesn't break his promises. When you hear something from God, when you read something in his word, you don't have to, to treat him like a politician and listen through that filter of wondering, well, is this real? Will he really do this? Does he keep his word? Does he keep his promises? Thank goodness God is not a politician. Our main point this morning is simply that the gospel is God's fulfillment of his promises. This section of scripture, this Paul is preaching here, is all about how God has made these promises and now fulfilled these promises in Jesus. And he says to a group of Jewish people in the synagogue who should know their Bibles, these promises have come do not miss them. Do not fail to believe these things. And that really is the challenge for us. Do not fail to believe these truths because God has done what He promised He would do. I made the joke on my Facebook page yesterday that I'm preaching someone else's sermon today. Uh, this is Paul's sermon. This is Paul going into a synagogue. This is Paul speaking to people who knew their Bibles. And maybe some of you have grown up in the church and you know your Bibles or you think you know your Bibles, but you have never believed in the Lord Jesus. Do not miss what God has done in fulfilling his promises. So first this morning, God has made covenant promises. 
Covenants are are solemn bonds, solemn oaths where you commit to do something. The, the, the most familiar type of covenant to us is the marriage covenant. You take an oath and you promise to do something, to love and cherish that person in, in sickness and in health till, till death do you part. God has made covenant promises. That kind of connection, that kind of oath to his people. So we're, we're going to move down through this passage. And, and in some ways, this is Paul's introduction. This is Paul's setup for getting to Jesus. God made these promises. So first, God has brought to fulfillment the promises of the Old Testament. I want you to notice where Paul's sermon kind of reaches its main point, its pinnacle, if you will. All of these Old Testament stories, this quick overview is leading up to verses 32 and 33. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us by raising Jesus. That's it. This is the main point. God has raised Jesus from the dead and it is in keeping with all of his promises. Now, how does he how does he lead up to that point? What is the the ramp, if you will, until we get there? Uh, so Paul's sermon is going to recount parts of the Old Testament, what we might call redemptive history, how God has been working in the people of Israel to continually save them, to redeem them. We could even call it covenant history. What has God done along the way to make promises and to keep them? And this might cause you to reflect on your knowledge of the Old Testament. Maybe some of you thinking back to your time in Sunday school as a little kid. But notice how it goes. Uh, verse 17. This, uh, the God of this people, Israel, uh, chose our fathers. Remember, he's speaking in the synagogue to Jewish people who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says, And he made the people great during their stay in Egypt and uplifted arm. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Uh, All of this took 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. The land was uh, the land of Israel was the inheritance of God's people in the Old Testament. So God had made promises to Abram, who later gets his name changed to Abraham. Genesis 12, verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go to your country and your kindred and your father's house, uh, from your father's house, to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And one verse later, he says, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Then Genesis chapter 13, again, a promise, a covenant promise to Abram. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look Uh, from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, and from all the land that you see, I will give it to you. All the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring. And then he goes on and says that the sins of the Amorites, the people that lived in the land, are not full yet. God's not ready to judge them. God's not ready to kick them out of the land. 
And so he says, you, your descendants, you will go down. They will go down to Egypt and they will be there for 400 years. And that's where we get the book of Exodus. This Exodus is how God brings the people up out of the land of Egypt, which Paul is reminding us and how they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Notice it says, and for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. They weren't always faithful in the wilderness. You know how it is when you take your kids on a van ride, a car ride, and you go for like a five, six hour drive. And they're saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Or they start acting up in the back and you're like, quiet, settle down. And, and then, they, you know, 10 miles down the road again, they start acting up. Would you knock it off? I said, stop. Uh, imagine a 40 year wandering in the wilderness and God, the parent, the, the father, if you will, of Israel. Are we there yet? Are we going to get water? I'm hungry. And he provides them manna and he provides them uh, birds of the air. And they continue to doubt him. And then they send 12 spies up into the land and 10 of them, the 12 come back and, and 10 say, no, no, it's going to be too hard. We can't go into the land. There's giants there. We'll never defeat these people. And two of them say, we can do this. We've got this. God has given us this. And of course, they decide not to go into the land and God punishes them with wandering for 40 years until they learn the lesson. And then we have, they go into the land of Canaan and God gives them this land as their inheritance. This took 450 years. And, and after a time, after the death of Joshua, we have some judges that are raised up. That's where we get the books of Joshua and Judges. And then at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we have a new judge raised up, Samuel. And then going through the book of Samuel, we have this time where, where it comes in chapter 8 and the people say to Samuel, we want a king. And they say, we want a king so we can be like the other nations. It's like when your child comes to you and says, Mom, I need this toy. All my friends have it. You say, well, no, I'm not going to get the free. But Mom, they're saying, but God, we want a king. And not a king who has a heart after God, but a, a king who would make them like everyone else who would project strength and power and might. And this is why God allows them to get Saul. He's a very tall, handsome, strong, robust man, a, a man's man, a warrior's warrior. And they have him as king for 40 years. And he leads them astray. Then we get uh, to God making his promises uh, to David. So we have Israel. They rebelled when they asked for a king. But God raised up David and made covenant promises to David. Verse 22 and 23. And when he had removed him, Saul, and raised him up David to be their king, of whom he testified, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. And this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. This is the covenant that God made with David. We call it the Davidic covenant. God made an oath to David and He said, you will always have descendants who will have a throne. And I will raise up an everlasting throne from you. Uh, Psalm 132, verse 11, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back 
one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And we have Israel and Paul doesn't go through all of this, but we have Israel and we have these successions of kings and they progressively walk away from the Lord. There are a few bright spots along the way, but they continue to abandon God. But God keeps his promise so that even when Israel is destroyed as a nation and goes down into Babylon, into the exile where where the book of Daniel is written, God still plans to keep his promise that a future king will come as a descendant of David. That king is Jesus. God made an oath to Abraham. God made an oath to David. And he keeps it. And he keeps it in sending the Savior, Jesus. Then Paul fast forwards to John the Baptist, who scriptures tell us is essentially the last great prophet. We have verses 24 and 25. Before his coming, John proclaimed, Uh, a baptism of repentance. In other words, before the coming of Jesus, John is going about proclaiming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. But John says, verse 25, the idea is, John says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to untie this great king's sandals. I don't know if you've ever taken off someone's feet, shoes. But feet can be very smelly. I mean someone else's shoes, not your own. If you've ever helped maybe your kids when they have those sweaty boots on and they come in from outside and you pull them off. And imagine in the ancient world with open toe sandals and you are walking around in the dust and it is a hot summer sweaty uh, day. Your feet are going to reek. And, and John the Baptist, so, so taking off someone's shoes, sandals, untying them is about as low as you can possibly go. You have to, to get down. And, and you're saying, you know, this person is greater than me. And John says, this person is so great, I'm not even worthy to be the guy that gets down and takes off his sandals. That lowly, humble, a stinky position. I'm not even worthy of that because Jesus is so great and I am so bad. And this is John the prophet. John, who Jesus says of all the, the men, uh, of all the individuals born of a woman up until that point, none is greater than John the Baptist in Luke 7.28. And John the Baptist knows who Jesus is and says, I'm that low when compared to him. The message of the gospel then and the fulfillment of Jesus is is connected to this storyline of the Old Testament. These promises that God has made along the way, God keeps them and fulfills them. God is doing this in the Lord Jesus. So God is the great promise maker and the great promise keeper. I want you to think about that. God is the great promise maker and the great promise keeper. When God says He's going to do something, when God makes a promise, He will do it. You cannot break 
God's word. Meaning when God says something and he promises to do it, you can't stop it from being fulfilled. You can't come along and withhold him and, and stop his plan. Scripture says in the book of Hebrews, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he has no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. God puts his own name on the line to keep it. And he does keep it. God's promise is to redeem a people to himself. And it is guaranteed because of his faithfulness and his promise. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Scripture says you will not be put to shame. You will be saved. It is a promise from God. A promise that cannot be broken. In doing this, in in making these promises, God brings glory to His own name by revealing Himself and showing us what He is like. What is the the effect of all this? What is the the coolness of all this? What is the best thing about all of this? God is showing us His character and His glory. Just like He said in Isaiah, I've told you these things ahead of time so that when they happen, you will know that it was Me. You won't say that it's an idol. Or we would say in our day, if he was speaking to us, you won't say that it's just a coincidence or it just is an accident that Jesus happened to be born in Bethlehem and happened to have all of these promises uh, fulfilled in him. People will know and people will see who God is and they will believe. Do you remember Rahab? Do you remember how she is in Jericho and she is a prostitute? And she has this this upper room house along the wall and the two spies come in and she hides the spies of Israel. But what does she say to them? She's not um, doing this because she's a prostitute. She's doing it because she's heard about who God is. And God now is changing her life. She says to them, and, and she talks, you have to think about this. She, she mentions the Exodus and she says, we heard about it. And she says in Joshua, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She said, God is really God and He is great and powerful. But the exodus happened. The the parting of the Red Sea happened 40 years ago from when Rahab speaks this. I'm not even 40 years yet, which means in my lifetime, if, if I would have been there, it hadn't happened in my lifetime. I don't know how old Rahab was, but I imagine if she was a prostitute, she was under the age of 40. It was 40 years after this event. And she says, we're still talking about it. And we heard about it. And, and she who, who wasn't there, who didn't witness it, says, I've heard about your God. And essentially, she repents. She confesses who he is because God displayed his wondrous power in redeeming Israel. In the New Testament, God displays his wondrous power by redeeming us. 
by raising Jesus from the dead. And it shows us how great He is. And people hear it and say, that is God. And I believe in that God. And they repent. And they turn. That brings us to our second point this morning. God has fulfilled those promises in raising Jesus from the dead. So the message of salvation has come. Look at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among who you fear, who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. So he's talking to uh, Jewish people and he's saying this has happened to us. And, and he's talking to people who these covenants had been given to. The descendants of Abraham. Some perhaps in the room, the descendants of, of David. These are Israelites, people from the bloodline of Abraham, which, which Paul says in Romans 9, they've been given the covenants and the tabernacle and the glory and all those wondrous miracles that God did along the way. And, and Paul says, all that stuff that our guys, the prophets, looked forward to, it has now happened. This salvation has been sent now. Jesus has come. We need to, to believe this, guys. You know your Bibles is what he's saying. God has done it. This is why Paul in Romans chapter 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. As the Gospel spreads in the book of Acts, it, it goes out and Paul often takes it into the synagogues first so that the people who are most familiar with the Bible, the Old Testament, might know first that God has done it. God has kept His Word. And then it, it's sort of like a, a bomb exploding. Once it lands in the synagogue, and some react favorably and some react negatively, but, but the Word spreads out. And we'll see next week, Gentiles hear about it. Uh, and, and it goes to the ends of the earth then. And by the end of the book of Acts, we find out it's going out more and more uh, to the Gentiles. Notice Paul says that the people rejected it, though, and they killed Jesus. Not the people that he's speaking to right now in the synagogue, but those who had been in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus and should have known better. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets. Now, now think about that. He's saying that Pharisees and scribes who are experts in the law didn't know their Bibles. They didn't understand prophecy, what Jesus was promised through these prophets and that Jesus was the fulfillment of that. And he says, which are read every Sabbath. Now he's, you know, in the synagogues, they read their Bibles every week. Even in the synagogue, he's preaching. Maybe some of you, you read your Bibles every week. You brought your Bibles today or your Bible app. You read your Bible during the week. It is possible to read your Bible every day, hours on end, and not understand the Word of God. Not because it's hard. The Scriptures in, in their essential truths are basically clear. But it's because my heart can be stubborn. I don't want to believe what it actually says. 
This is how the people of Israel were. And they thought they could resist the plan of God. And it says in verse 28 and 29, Though they found no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in the tomb. These people, uh, it says in verse 27, I missed, I skipped over it, that they fulfilled them by condemning him. They fulfilled the scriptures that they did not understand. That it was always God's plan to kill Jesus. Now think about that for a minute. Here are these people, they're going along. They don't like what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is saying he's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. He's come to teach him, uh, to, to save the world, I mean, and to teach them the truth. And these uh, people who should know the prophets say, we're going to stop this. God, God is not at work here. No, 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 Jesus, we don't like you. So they go and they kill him. And it says they are at this time fulfilling the very words that they thought they were that well, that they didn't believe. So they thought they're they're stopping God from his plan. We're keeping Jesus from doing his plan. And the whole time, they're actually carrying it out. They're actually doing what God wanted. Can God use evil, wicked people to accomplish good? Yeah. God used the death of his own son. The death that evil, wicked people really, really wanted and hated him. And he used it to accomplish our salvation. God can use evil at the end of the day for good. doesn't mean he condones the evil. But God is so in control of all things. We can't even begin to fathom his plan. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 2.8 that none of the rulers of this age, if they had understood, would have crucified the Lord of glory. So then he's taken and he's laid in the grave and it says Jesus rose from the dead, verse 30 and 31. But God raised him from the dead and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jesus, who are his witnesses to the people. Then you have the resurrection as a fulfillment, verses 32 and 33. And we bring you good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, uh, to their children, by raising Jesus. Paul says, this is the gospel. This is the good news. God has kept his promises. And I want, I want you to think about that for a second. Why do we have the Old Testament? What's the purpose of the Old Testament? Could we just chop off the Old Testament and say, well, I'm only going to read the New it's newer. It must be better. The Old Testament is God laying down all of these promises, showing us his character, showing us his ways, showing us how he handles sin, but showing us how he is merciful to the sinner, promising Jesus so that it can be fulfilled. How is it fulfilled? The death of Jesus, but most specifically in this passage, the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that God made to David 
I should be clear, there are a few more promises yet to be fulfilled, but, but the key ones, the main ones, the, the Davidic covenant, this, you will have a son who will reign on the throne forever. It is done. Jesus fulfills it. How do we know? Paul says, look at Psalm 2. So we'll look at Acts 13.33, where Psalm 2 is quoted. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. The resurrection assures us that Jesus is the Savior. We have witnesses to it. Paul says we were witnesses of this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, as many as 500 people saw it. We have the testimony of the Word of God. God Himself in the Old Testament saying this would happen. God in the New Testament. The the apostles writing the Word of God. How do you and I know that Jesus rose from the dead? We have the testimony of authority. We have the very Word of God. We have the Word of God writing the account of the eyewitnesses. You can know that Jesus rose from the dead. And the whole point of the resurrection from the dead is that this doesn't happen every day. That this is a miracle. That this is something amazing and overwhelming and unlike anything God had ever done up to this point. Psalm 2 is about how God takes His Son and sets Him in Zion on a royal throne. And this this language of uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It doesn't mean, uh, normally the language would mean something like, you know, this is the day that you are born. Um, Today I have begotten you. I didn't say that to any of my kids when they were born, but I I probably could have. But who talks like that? But, But this language in the context of Psalm 2 is not saying, Well, Jesus only now becomes the Son of God. No, it's this is my Son or you are my Son. But today, it's it's this today I've put you on the throne. Today I have installed you as the King and I have made it clear to everyone. Jesus has always been the eternal Son of God. Jesus walking around on earth in a human body was always the Son of God at every moment. He was the Son of God before He became born of the Virgin. He's been the Son of God for all eternity past. Scripture says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But, but the plan of God is that at a specific point in time, Jesus would die. He would pay for our sins, be the Savior. And God would raise him up from the dead. He would say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come into the inheritance which I have for you. You have this kingdom now. God raises Jesus up from the dead and 40 days later, Jesus goes up into heaven and ascends and he he gets this royal crown, if you will. In His human resurrected body, 
Jesus is reigning as king over everything. And because he is the king, he is also the savior. And because he is the king, it is the fulfillment of this promise to David. And because the promise to David is filled, fulfilled, all of these benefits flow to us. Look at Isaiah 55.3, which is, which is quoted here. I've got to flip my page here. Isaiah 55.3 is quoted in verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, which, which by the way, the corruption there is referring to the decay of the body. It doesn't mean corruption by sin. It doesn't mean like we would use the phrase a, a corrupt politician. Uh, it, it means his body was, was starting to rot in the grave. But it didn't get there. And God raised him up and Jesus' body can never die or rot or face bodily corruption or decay again. Then it says he has spoken in this way, I will give you. And, and that you there is plural. It's speaking to the people of God. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Psalm 55 is all about people coming to God. If I wanted to preach an evangelistic message from the Old Testament, Psalm 55 would be a great place to do that. He says things like, come to God, come and listen. Come and receive these blessings. Find out how great God is. But Paul quotes one phrase of it. To you. To us. The blessings. The fulfillments of the promises. The eternal inheritance. Why does Paul say in in Ephesians chapter 1 that we have in the Son the inheritance of all spiritual blessings. Because we have a kingdom that awaits us. We have the hope of heaven and then ultimately the hope of the resurrection and the new creation. How do we have that? Because Jesus is the Savior. Then he quotes Psalm 16, verse 10. Therefore, it says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. It's a psalm of David. So Paul says, for David, after he had served his purpose, the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, whom God raised from uh, up. Yeah, he whom God raised up did not see corruption. In other words, this is exactly like Peter says in in Acts chapter 2. David died. And his body is rotting. It's dust by now. David didn't preach that psalm or write that psalm about himself. God wrote it as a promise about Jesus. Jesus' body did not rot away in the grave. He rose again from the dead. How do I know Jesus is king over all creation? Well, on the one hand, he's king by virtue of being the son of God. He's always been the king. But on the other hand, he has shown his majesty and his glory within creation. He came to earth. He died on the cross. And most of all, he rose again from the dead. Scripture talks about him when he's when he's being raised up from the dead, being crowned with glory and honor. 
When we see Jesus in the last day, we will see glory radiating from Him. And if we are God's children, we will enjoy it. We will delight in it. We will not be eradicated by the glory of God. The resurrection assures us of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The, res- the, the, the gospel, good news, the, the, the language is of a royal announcement. We are talking about a king here. When, when, when private citizens, pagans, use this language of good news, they would talk about the birth of a king or, or a king being put on the throne or a great victory that a king had in battle. We are talking about God and saying, in Jesus Christ, our God reigns. Let me give you kind of two applications for this. One, we can be so self-centered in our lives. I say this of myself as well. So focused on on what is God doing for me? Something bad happens and we say, where are you, God? Are you really listening to me and paying attention? Jesus Christ, even in those bad situations, still reigns. God is is still carrying out His magnificent plan to, to bring everything under His feet. And we're a part of that plan. God brings us into His family. He makes us His children. He, he gives us these, these spiritual blessings. But, but we can be like that child. You know, your parents put food on the table. They clothe you. They do all these great things for you. They drive you to baseball practice. They buy new soccer cleats for you. They, they see that you get a bath and a shower When you skin your knee, they wash it up. They put the Band-Aid on it. And yet kids can still come in and be, well, you don't love me if you don't get me this video game. Or if you don't do this for me, I don't really think you care. And we can be that stubborn with God. And we miss how God has been fulfilling and keeping all of His promises. And He has our best interests ahead of us. In mind that God works all things for His glory according uh, to those who love Him. Romans chapter 8, 28. Second, when you share the gospel, you are, are making a royal announcement. You are, you are like an ambassador who, who comes from a foreign nation and says, let me tell you about my king. Let me tell you about the kingdom I come from, the government that rules over me. God, Jesus, the kingdom of God. Why is it that that so many people want to come to America? Immigrants, before they're immigrants, they hear about how great America is. They hear about the opportunities that are here. You can have a job. You can put food on the table. You can provide for your family. And they say, I want to be there. I want to go there. I want to experience that. When you share the gospel, you're telling people how wonderful Jesus is. 
that he's this great and mighty king, that he is this savior and this Lord, that, that in the resurrection he rules over all things. And he is this great, uh, uh, he is this great and mighty and patient and benevolent king. He's the good guy, if you will. And we are to tell it in such a way that, that it, it, that it, it, that the Holy Spirit will use it to draw people. That we paint this picture of what it is like to be under the kingship of God and we say, this is how wonderful God is. All of those burdens that you have, the sin that you struggle with, God will remove the guilt of that. And you will be in an eternal heaven and a new heavens and a new earth and it will be unlike anything you have ever experienced. And the grace of God uses that to stir in people's heart and they say, wow, I want that. That is amazing. This Jesus fellow sounds awesome. Just to be under his kingship. To to bend the knee. That's what God uses to change the heart. When you are sharing the gospel, you are talking about the good news of God who has fulfilled his plans in raising Jesus from the dead. The good news is more than just the offer of salvation. Part of the good news is if you believe in Jesus, you can be saved. Don't misunderstand that. That is good news. But the good news is also Jesus reigns. Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if that is not part of the good news when you share the gospel, they have no way of knowing that salvation really is real. We're telling them what God has done in Jesus. It is good. And if you believe in this, you can be saved as part of the announcement then. Believe in Jesus to find forgiveness of sins. I want to take you through the third point, but I want to show you and I want to apply how Paul applies this passage. First, it is only through Jesus that you find the forgiveness of sins. You see this in verse 26. To us it has been sent this message of salvation. You see this in verse 38. Brothers, let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. There is no other name in heaven and on earth by which we can be saved. This is the only way to God. But God has done this. He has made this awesome way open that if you will believe in this, you can receive it. It is delightful to come and recognize the kingship of Jesus. And He offers this salvation freely. Believe in His name. But you can only come in through Jesus. It is only through Jesus. The second thing for us to know is that in salvation, in Jesus, we are freed from sin and death and everything which the Old Testament law, all the commands of God, could not save us from. Look at verse 39. And by, and by him... Everyone who believes is freed from everything which we could not be freed in by the Mosaic law. The people of God knew this, sometimes better than we know this ourselves. You can't get to God 
by trying to keep all of his commandments. Over and over again, God's people failed to do that. Even David, who was described as a man after God's own heart, failed miserably, committing adultery with a married woman and killing her husband in a conspiracy. Only Jesus saves us. I could stand up here until I'm blue in the face and say, well, God wants you to do this and God wants you to do that and you shouldn't steal and you shouldn't murder and you need to love God with your whole heart and you really ought to be a good parent because that's what God desires. And if you're a kid, you really ought to obey your parents because that's what God desires. And those would be all good commands and right ways to live. But none of it would save you. None of it would make you a good person. It is only by believing in Jesus that he changes our heart. So the scriptures say in Romans chapter 8, for God has done for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. Meaning I can't obey God because I am a sinner. But God sent His Son to pay the penalty for my sins, accomplishing what I couldn't do no matter how hard I tried to obey God. Sometimes, even as Christians, we get going in our life and we think we're pretty good people and we pat ourselves on the back and we start to lose sight of the fact that we are saved by Jesus, not by any good things that we've done. God loves you and sent His Son to die for you. Believe that. Receive that. God doesn't love you because of how hard you try. God loved you while you were a sinner. And then lastly, you've been told the work of God. Don't fail to believe it. Look at verses 40 and 41. Beware, therefore, lest he is said, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, scoffers, be astonished, for I am doing in your days a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. I've just told you, like Paul tells the synagogue, what Jesus has done. Don't miss it. Don't fail to believe it. There will come a day. It will either be your death or it will be the day that Jesus returns, whichever day comes first. And it will be too late to believe these things. Believe it now. Receive it. Know what God has done. When you come before Jesus Christ, you are accepting Him as your Lord and your Savior. You're saying, He died to pay the penalty for my sins. And I believe this. He rose again from the dead. And I believe this. Save me from my sins. And He's our King. And He is ruling now over all of creation and wants to be someone in your life that you know Him and He knows you in that saving relationship. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just pray that You would work in our hearts today. We would marvel, Lord Jesus, at your majesty 
at your kingdom, that, that you are the Son of God and you have been placed now up in heaven at the Father's right hand, reigning and ruling over all things, that all of creation is under your dominion and rule, and one day you will come back and you will defeat death and accomplish your kingdom and your reign once and for all. But right now, Lord, be in our hearts our Lord and King. That we confess these things, remind us of these truths. May they be life-giving to us. In your precious name we pray. Amen.